Managing Cutoff. I am Anthony Colangelo, and I'm very excited about today's show. We will be sitting down and talking to Brent Sherwood, the Senior Vice President of Advanced Development Programs for Blue Origin. We're going to talk all about Orbital Reef, which is their uh, space station project that they have underway. They are partnered with Sierra Space on the program, and they have a bunch of other team members involved. Boeing, Redwire, Genesis Engineering Solutions, Arizona State University, among others, contributing to this They previously won $130 million from NASA as part of the Commercial LEO Destinations program to develop these free-flying space station concepts. Uh, So they are in the mix alongside NanoRacks. We previously talked to Marshall Smith of NanoRacks about uh, their space station called Starlab, and Northrop Grumman is the other competitor in that program. This is for the free-flying commercial space station programs. That is in addition to... Axiom Space, who is working on modules that will initially be attached to ISS, eventually breaking away to be a free-flying station of its own. So I am slowly working my way through all of those competitors. Uh, We've had, I think, three different shows with Axiom on the podcast uh, through their lifespan. We've had that one I mentioned with Marshall Smith about Starlab, and today we'll be talking with Brent Sherwood once again. So we're going to dive into all sorts of stuff, the uh, architecture and how they ended up at that at this architecture. It's been a long time in the making, as you'll hear us talk about. Uh, we're also talking about the way that the partnership is structured among Sierra Space, Blue Origin, and all the other team members. And then we're going to talk about the parts of the program that are specific to their contract with NASA and how that might differ from uh, a purely commercial space station, you know, not centered around a, an anchor customer this early on in the program. And then the most interesting parts, I think, is that we get to at the end is how their business strategy might play out in the near future, where they're working on building modules for customers that might not have the space experience, um, but also talking about how they remain open to those that do have extensive space experience. So a uh, very cool conversation. I'm excited for you to hear it. So without further ado, let's talk to Brent. All right, we are here with Brent Sherwood, the Senior Vice President of the Advanced Development Programs uh, at Blue Origin. I We want to talk all about Orbital Reef today, um, but I think it might be cool to talk about the Advanced Development Programs part of your title, exactly what that is, what that entails, and maybe if you can't tell us the projects you're working on day-to-day, some of the projects in your past that that have been under that, because I think it's a little bit mysterious of a title, even though it's uh, definitely a cool one. Sure. Um, no, I can say a few things about our, our portfolio. Um, so the way Blue Origin is organized, we have four businesses. Um, and essentially, if it's not a rocket engine or a rocket, then it's in advanced development programs. So the way to think about it is uh, in-space systems uh, for our various product lines. Um, and uh, so we have flight programs in next-gen space transportation, space mobility, space destinations, which is what we'll be talking about today, and lunar permanence. Um, And in addition, uh, advanced technology projects and um, Honeybee Robotics uh, reports into advanced development programs as well. Yeah, that's a recent change that I totally forgot about because it was so recent and I haven't committed that to long-term memory yet. Um, so I want to talk about the history of Orbital Reef and the the architecture itself, because I've got opened up here on my desktop. I've got a paper that I believe is from 1994 called Mixed Use Business Park Developments in Space. And the fourth (laughs) of five authors here is a man named Brent Sherwood. So I feel like you might have a little more longer history context of this than people might realize. Yeah, it's, uh, so this has been in the works for a very long time. Um, as you just noted, um, 
fairly early in my career, I was a manufacturing engineer on the International Space Station. Actually, before it was the ISS, uh, back when we called it Space Station Freedom. And I was at Boeing at the time, so we were building the pressurized systems, the modules. And uh, in that time, I, I led the team that figured out how to build the ship in the bottle, so to speak. So, because you make a big pressure vessel and then you have to stuff it full of wiring and tubing and ducts and, and replaceable units and secondary structure and all that kind of stuff. And that, that's a hard challenge because it all goes in through the hatch opening and has to be in, installed to make a complete module system. So I've been thinking about space stations uh, in general for many decades and then uh, in manufacturing terms in a very intense way for a few years um, in the early 90s. That um, led me to be thinking about uh, other uses for space stations than just research, uh, which caused me to publish a paper in, I think it was 1990 or 91, um, on uh, commercial resort hotels in Earth orbit, uh, which is the first modern paper about space hotels since uh, Hilton's paper in the 70s. And uh, in presenting that work, I got to meet some people who actually know things about developing commercial real estate. And that uh, Chuck Lauer was the principal one among them. This is in the early 90s. And then that led to a small team of us developing the idea of a mixed use space business park. And that's what you, uh, that's the paper you cite. One of, one of them. Uh, we had a series of about three papers on the topic. And the idea is just very simply that um, the way we do mixed use business parks on earth has merit as a model for developing real estate in space. And, and that is uh, that there's a separation of the business case of a user or a tenant, which could be a store or a factory or a researcher or you know some laboratory, that's the way it works on Earth today, uh, a separation of their business cases from the business case of running the overall real estate enterprise. Um, and that, that model works very well on Earth uh, for a variety of reasons that have to do with uh, regulatory issues and um, uh, the spreading of risk um, uh, across multiple companies uh, that are in diverse industries. And so it, it occurred to us that that same business model uh, might help us develop commercial real estate in space. That's where it all originated. And so the current iteration that we're looking at in, in Orbital Reef's term, um, I'm trying to get a sense for the positioning of it and NASA's commercial LEO destinations program that you're obviously a part of. Um, mm -hmm. the, the partnership that we're looking at, you know, the, the list is pretty long with Blue Origin, Sierra Space, Boeing, Redwire, Genesis, Arizona State. I'm sure there's more that uh, are not on that list yet that you're working with. But um, how did that partnership come about in relation to that program? Was it completely distinct from that? And then the NASA program came along at the right time? Or is this a partnership that's crafted around what NASA is looking at in the near future? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the, the, the answer is that uh, we put this particular team together um, knowing uh, last year that NASA was going to be embarking on on what they call the CLD or or now CDFF, the Commercial Destination Free Flyer Program. Uh, so we knew that was coming, and 
our our I'd call it sort of uh, long term uh, uh, but general thoughts about developing Leo kind of came to a head because of the timing of the NASA opportunity. So as usual, the government is a catalyst uh, for business and represents kind of an anchor uh, customer for a commercial station, and and that's the agency plan. So the timing was good um, to put the team together uh, to. Uh, really build out this vision of commercial real estate and to uh, normalize and increase the amount of uh, uh, human activity in Leo, um, but also to propose that uh, team and that architecture into the NASA opportunity. So it kind of all happened at the same time. And and we were looking at a variety of um, what I'd call physical architecture concepts. Uh, I had an advanced concepts team that that had about eight of those approaches, very, very different from each other. And the one that uh, rose to the top is the one that we now call Orbital Reef, um, which um, is consistent with this mixed-use business park vision because it implements an approach. It's sort of a, it's a business architecture as built-in physical architecture, but it it very thoughtfully divides the hardest parts from the um, easier parts. And it puts all the harder parts concentrated in infrastructure to make the, the easier parts, which are the applications modules for different users and different customer types, to keep them as simple as possible. Um, and, and part of our approach is that by doing that, we... Uh, we're, we're good landlords, I'd say, in the sense that, you know, we're going to take care of all the infrastructure and the vehicle hosting and the power and thermal and, you know, telecom. All Trash that will go stuff. out on the right day, that whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> physical security, cybersecurity, you know, all those things. Um, and then the customers are free to focus just on their business. Um, <clears throat> again, in keeping with the terrestrial model. So we think that that will lower the bar to the maximum degree for a diverse set of customers to get into the game. And that's really what the objective is. It's, it's uh, as I said, to expand and normalize the types of human activity in low Earth orbit. Now, in terms of the initial configuration, um, I understand you just made it through initial design review with NASA for, uh, I believe this is the initial component, which would be one of the core modules that Blue Origin's building, uh, the life module from Sierra Space, and then the logistics module from Boeing. Uh, at least last I heard from y'all, that was the initial configuration as envisioned. Is that still uh, true? Um, so, yeah, let me, let me, uh, uh, I won't say update, but let me, um, <laughs> let me correct you a little. <laughs> Sorry. Either one's good. Um, so that's good. Yeah. The, um, so the baseline configuration, the one that people will see fly in the late 2020s has, um, a core module, um, and an energy an external energy system that's power in and thermal out and all the associated vehicle things, propulsion, attitude control, all that, um, associated with the core module. And then the the first two attached modules are the life module from Sierra, which is, you can think of it as the dormitory functions. Um, and then a research module, uh, which would be uh, done by Boeing. And that's the microgravity laboratory um, part that NASA and its, its peer institutions require for uh, conducting microgravity research. So that, that kind of gives you the essence of it. There's 
the infrastructure core, and then there's a dormitory module and a laboratory module. That's the essence. Um, the um, uh, so yeah, e each of the teammates has a distinct role. Um, Boeing and Sierra and and Blue Origin are the three primary transportation system providers, and then. Uh, the rest of the set are for associated uh, destination system elements uh, and services. Now, with the initial baseline configuration, is that how you think that you would plan that out if you weren't involved in the NASA program? Or uh, is there something specific about that configuration to NASA's requirements? Oh, um, yeah. So the... I guess I would I would answer that this way. Think think of the market in three big segments, um, uh, and I'm going to give them to you in reverse order, <laughs> so so that we can uh, uh, answer your question specifically. The third one is flying people, which starts with adventure travel and then progresses to tourism and eventually orbital living. The middle one, the second one, is uh, built up out of multiple industries, commercial industries and enterprises, most of which have not really had an opportunity to, to operate in space so far. So that includes things like um, entertainment industries, like sports, gaming, and so forth, um, advertising, marketing, but also um, scaling up the production of industrial products that can only be made in space for use in the terrestrial economy. And so that one is, that one requires applied research, industrial research, um, and so forth. And it's associated with, but different from the first market segment, the very first one, which is basic research. So the good news about that market, basic research, is that um, we understand how to do it. That's what's been being done on space station for decades. Um, it's a it's a very stable market. It's predictable. Uh, NASA and its peer agencies, uh, the the ISS National Laboratory, which has half the capacity on the ISS, and the international agencies as well, all do basic research. Um, the bad news about that market is that it's very stable. <laughs> it's it's not a market that's going to grow by a factor of five or ten or, you know. It's the other two segments that are the that have the upside potential that has folks excited, um, and a lot of those customers don't even exist yet as customers, and so we're working with a, a diverse set of folks to develop what can be done and then to meet their needs. But that first market, um, the the basic research market, is well understood, and that's the one that NASA needs to make sure doesn't experience what they call a Leo gap, right? Between the end of the useful life of station and the beginning of uh, a commercial substitution for it. Uh, we definitely don't want to have a gap in um, United States presence in low Earth orbit the way we did when we retired the shuttle before the commercial transportation systems were online. So that's that gap is what we're trying to avoid. That drives NASA's timing, and NASA's timing in turn drives our timing. So to answer your question, do I need a research lab on my space station? Well, primarily, it's for NASA and its peers who are the, the customers of that. For applied research, that's most likely a different type 
of optimized facility. That's more, you could think of it as industrial space rather than fundamental, you know, laboratory benchtop kind of stuff, the way we do with microgravity research today. So, so that the existence of that research lab in our baseline configuration is directly traced to supporting NASA's needs uh, without a LEO gap. Yeah. And that, I assume that's kind of similar on the, ha- on the habitation side, that it's scaled for the amount of crew time that that initial customer base, you know, is envisioned to be of, of however many astronauts for however much length of time. It's, it's sort of scaled yes around that? No, um, that's a, that one's a little different. And the reason is that um, NASA's uh, written um, uh, requirements for microgravity research are fairly modest. Um, two crew continuously doing only research, not operations, um, and uh, an average of 200 experiments per year. So that's um, uh, somewhat modest compared to uh, today's use of the ISS and the way the ISS was designed. So for, for a laboratory, um, you know, you, you size it for that capacity plus what you expect the rest of the market to be. Um, and then on the <clears throat> for the for the other functions <clears throat> like um, the dormitory functions and so forth, um, that's where you start to get these other markets, right? So if, if NASA wants two crew continuously, and then we need some operations crew for the station, uh, we're designing for capacity significantly above that because we expect adventure travelers and tourists uh, and other business travelers to be there. Um, right with them in this mixed use kind of setting. Now, in terms of um, the interconnection between these three core modules and the way that each company is working on them internally, um, what is the coordination like between the partners right now when you're making a decision about, you know, something internal to your module or Sierra Space is making trades uh, internally to their solution? Are all of those reviewed by the whole set of partners? Does somebody have final say over that things? And what happens if those change within each module? Yeah. <clears throat> so um, this is like any other large-scale aerospace development program. Um, it's um, The requirements are um, we develop lower-tier requirements from the top-level requirements. And um, they're so they're tiered. So if there are changes that a partner uh, or a teammate um, wants to or needs to make for an individual system, as long as the impacts of that change are contained within that system, then that's easy. But if the if the impacts uh, modify the interface between that system and the rest of the vehicle, then that becomes a vehicle consideration. And um, the the, the team weighs that together in a change board, uh, j- just like any other uh, uh, space development program. Now, it's kind of interesting of the the way that this is set up um, in terms of, you know, whose modules position where, you know, if, if you decided tomorrow this project's not for us anymore and, and, you know, bounced, that seems to bring the whole situation down, right? Like, I don't know if the other two are going to re- be ready to step up and build that core module on the same timeline with the same functionality. The other two, you know, are are maybe in a different situation where they are these uh, use cases that are attached to the core module. So they're not handling some of the things that is, you know, the responsibility of the core module. So is there anything about the partnership structure that kind of references which pieces are 
exchangeable, which pieces are interchangeable, which pieces are potential um, schedule risks. Uh, how does all how does all of that get managed in in terms of whose responsibility sure. that is to look at that risk? Yeah, well, so the um, the the partners uh, uh, in Orbital Reef are Blue Origin and Sierra Space, um, and the other teammates are teammates. Um, so the the vehicle level program level decision making is by Blue and Sierra, um, and we uh, like any good aerospace program. You know, we we listen to all of our teammates and and all the uh, uh, particularly you know I, they all they each bring unique experience, and so nobody knows more about operating and maintaining a space station than Boeing. So if you know, when I won't say if, when the, um, our Boeing experts, uh, give us advice, um, in the design phase where we pay very close attention to that. That's, that's one of the reasons that they're on the team. Um, <laughs> you don't go, ah, what do you know? Exactly. How, how long have you been flying a thing up there? Exactly. Um, with respect to, um, schedule, I would say the entire schedule is very aggressive. Um, you know, it took a long time to develop space station, uh, a few reasons for that. One, you know, government program. Second, uh, multiple governments um, together. Third, it was the first time it had really been done. Um, very different from Skylab or Mir or Salyut. You know, it was a very different kind of space station. Now that all that's been done, and since this is a commercial development, we have the opportunity to go faster. And that's certainly our goal. Um, but the schedule is still very aggressive. Um, with respect to uh, kind of the risk of somebody changing their mind, <laughs> um, I, I guess I would just say um, we are in this for the long haul. You know, both Sierra Space and Blue Origin have very long term visions that involve sustained and expanded human space flight and operations. So uh, there's um, I just say that's not a consideration We're we're uh, committed to this. And it's very nice to be partnered um uh to, to have two companies partnered who are um uh, more independent in their ability to maneuver than traditional government contractors so uh we have a kind of flexibility um that a lot of other companies don't and so that's that makes us good partners because we can make decisions fast and move one thing I'm really interested in um, that I saw mentioned some of the original rollout of Orbital Reef was the idea that, um, and I think this was specific to Blue Origin, that that you would work with non-traditional space companies to build out modules for them and, and add them on to you know the business park in the future. Um, I, I didn't see a lot of info on that, so I'm interested to dive into that. What would it be like, it, number one, is that even the case? Is that the, the current plan that you would work with companies that don't have a space experience to build out modules for them? Um, if that is true, what would that experience be like if Ritz Carlton came to you and said, we want to build, you know, a really high end hotel? What would their interaction with Blue be? Um, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, the, and uh, the the types of enterprises that might ask that question um, would certainly include hospitality, as you mentioned, but also industrial consortia. Um, that have not done a lot of large scale experimentation in space, um, and also, uh, other nations. So, um, if you imagine, a, a country that has a, a nascent space program, <clears throat> um, we would like Orbital Reef to provide, um, countries like that an earlier 
um, lower friction opportunity to have a footprint in space than they would otherwise possibly be able to have. And so that gets to your question of, of the kind of assistance. If someone comes in to be a, I'll, I'll call it a tenant of, of Orbital Reef, a participant in Orbital Reef, um, and has all of the requisite um, capability to build a module and certify it um, to our standards, you know, and attach it to our station, um, then that's fantastic, right? The, the, the business model there is we'll lease a port uh, for some length of time. But if somebody um, wants to be there and doesn't have all the requisite capacity within our team, we have all of that. So we can, it's like you can dial in how much help you need in order to get your address on orbit. Uh, if you know a lot, great. If you don't know anything, that's okay too. Um, and, and again, so you can, this theme is consistent with what I mentioned earlier about kind of opening the aperture for the most diverse possible set of Leo customers. That's really um, how we intend to change the economics of uh, uh, flying and using low Earth orbit. So that would be a boutique engagement where, you know, they might say we want help designing everything from the pressure vessel to the interfaces inside or, uh, you know, just as much as, as they need integration help to figure out exactly how this system works, what they can rely on. It's it's boutique and anything in that range is is up for grabs. Yeah, it's uh, you can dial it in. Um, so so our, our approach, our business approach is what we call open vertical integration, which means um, it's vertically integrated in the sense that across our team, we have the capabilities to develop and uh, test and operate any aspect of this end-to-end -end service. So we, we have it all within the context of the team. But if somebody comes in and has their own, that's okay too. So just because it's vertically integrated doesn't mean it's a closed garden. Mm. It's, it's, it's open. And so yeah, we yeah. would just have those discussions, figure out where the right uh, water line is really for the kind of help needed. Um, and then that would be the basis of the contractual arrangement. We have just a couple minutes left, but you mentioned end-to-end -end services. And I want to dive into that because end-to-end um, -end services also includes the word transportation on, on the website and some of the market material. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that uh, Orbital Reef will be planning cargo and crew flights on particular schedules and uh, those will be based around what kind of customer load you have, some of the internal needs, like you mentioned, uh, the crew being uh, a main part of that. How does that end-to-end -end transportation idea actually manifest in, in like the flight program that you have around yeah. Orbital Reef? Um, so again, that's part of the open vertical integration uh, nature of the structure of the team. Um, so uh, New Glenn uh, um, is a very heavy lift, um, low earth orbit uh, vehicle. Uh, optimized for low Earth orbit. And um, with uh, Boeing Starliner and Sierra Space's Dream Chaser, now we have the, the, all the fundamental elements of transportation up and down um, and uh, within the context of the team. So we can optimize the service for our, our customers' needs. Um, the NASA program, CLD or CDFF, um, mandates the provision of end-to-end -end services. So it's important to understand NASA is not trying to buy a space station. They're, they're, what they want is uh, LEO hosting services, and that includes logistics resupply, crew transportation, all the ops and maintenance, all of that activity 
in a turnkey sort of a way, uh, which again is how it happens on Earth. Um, and so we're very excited to be able to um, integrate those services, uh, our products and services in a way that uh, maximizes cost effectiveness for the customers. Um, but that, but that's all done within the context of the Orbital Reef offering, you could say. Right. So if, you know, Axiom wanted to fly another private astronaut mission, but they're going to Orbital Reef this time, you, that, that architecture would be open to visitors that Absolutely. are outside of the end-to-end -end arrangement yep. as well? Designed to be open. Um, you know, there, there's... For, if we're going to get to a place where hundreds or thousands or millions, eventually, of people are living and working in space... We've got to go through a phase which uh, kind of mushrooms the activity in Earth orbit. A lot more of it, a lot more diverse types of activities. Um, and that's what NASA means when they use the phrase a robust ecosystem. So we're trying to build that ecosystem or at least build the infrastructure that allows that ecosystem to grow. Um, and I would say the more the merrier. That's, that's the way this business has to grow. Perfect place to end it. You stuck the landing with the tagline in there and all. Uh, you're a true professional. <laughs> Brent, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Anthony, you're quite welcome. Thanks. Thanks again so much to Brent for uh, coming on the show, talking with us at length about Orbital Reef. It's a very cool project, and uh, the commercial LEO destination side of things is one I'm particularly excited about. So anytime we get a chance to talk to people actually working on these programs, especially someone that's been working on these concepts for almost as long as I've been alive, if not longer, uh, the, the way that Brent has is a very cool uh, aspect as well. Now, I could not do this kind of stuff without all of your support. This is a 100% listener-supported show, and uh, it is my full-time job. I quit my job last year to do this full-time, and so it is all thanks to you. There are 828 of you supporting this show every single month at mainenginecutoff.com support. That includes 40 executive producers who made this episode possible. Thanks to Simon, Lauren, Chris, Pat, Matt, George, Ryan, Donald, Lee, Chris, Warren, Bob, Russell, Moritz, Joel, Jan, David, Eunice, Rob, Tim Dodd, the Everyday Astronaut, Frank, Julian and Lars from Agile Space, Tommy, Matt, the Astrogators at SEE, Chris, Aegis Trade Law, Fred, Haymonth, Don Aerospace, Andrew, and seven anonymous executive producers. Thank you all so much. If you want to help join that crew, if you want to get Miko Headlines, which is an entire podcast I do every single week, separate from this one for the people that pay $3 a month or more. I run through all the stories of the week, give you my thoughts on them. It's a great way to stay up on space news, help support the show, and make more episodes like this possible. Once again, thank you all so much for your support. And with that, that's all I've got for you this week. If you've got any questions or thoughts, hit me up on Twitter at WeHaveMiko or on email anthony at managingcutoff.com. And until next time, I'll talk to you soon.